You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has smicha. How you doing? I'm Avram Kivalevich. I'm here, of course, with Yitzchak Kolakowski. And we're here to darshan about old movies and vintage TV. Um, we forgot about vintage TV the last week, Yitzchak. And uh, maybe you want to start over there, perhaps. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little under the weather, which kind of gives me a little extra time to watch some some TV. And one of my favorite shows that, you know, I, I always like to watch the, the old shows on Nick at Night when I was growing up, you know, and it, it kind of jarred me when Nick at Night started showing shows that were new when I was a kid. That kind of, but uh, one of the shows that I really liked to watch was the Phil Silver show, the Sergeant Pilko show. I was a little disappointed when they made a movie, which I remember seeing in the theater with, uh, I think it was Steve Martin played Bilko. He, he did not capture the character of Phil Silvers, uh, who, you know, pretty much played the same character every time, you know, but he was, he was so talented in what he did. And, uh, and I've discovered now on YouTube, you can, uh, you can find a lot of these episodes and from the second and one that I watched last week from the second season, uh, I believe the ninth episode was a mess sergeant can never win. And Joe E. Ross, who was always fun in another great uh, Nat Hiken, Nate Hiken show was Car 54, Where Are You? Which was- ooh, 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 was his, yeah. um, that was his uh, catchphrase. I think he used it even out of Car 54, right? I think, I don't know. Right. <laughs> that was yeah, sort of. He was, he was Tootie on Car 54. He was the, the mess sergeant on this. He was also on It's About Time. He was the caveman. Yes, uh, I remember that show well. It's about time. It's about space. Um, of course, uh, yeah, I, whenever I hear about the, the famous um, former um, uh, Boston or New England Patriot tight end and now for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Ron Gronkowski, what's his nickname? Gronk. If you remember on the old It's About Time, you know, I think Gronk was the... Um, was one of the uh, the the cavemen who uh, the muscular caveman Gronk himself. Yeah, definitely a show that was a uh, Imogen Coca. I think was um, was yeah, in was that show as well. Wife, yeah. Imogen Coca was in that show as well. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, so Joey Ross was Joey Ross definitely a television um, uh, a television uh, veteran, and he he was one of he was one of uh, Bilko's. Hevra, uh, right? He were, or or is this a, was he a guest star on this program? Or was he was well, he, he appeared in in a number of episodes, and you know he was the the mess sergeant. He you know he would which you know I think my uh, I think my grandpa was during World War Two. I know he worked in the mess hall. I don't know if he made sergeant or not, but uh, it was uh, you know so that it's something interesting there. But yeah. the, and, and part of Bilko, of course, it was. Um, you know, it, it was was happening during World War Two. Was that was it was supposed to be happening at some base during World War Two, or was it happening in peacetime? Well, you know, because I I know the show was originally based. You know, I think it was as you said, it was called "You Never Get Rich," which is of course you're in the army now. You'll never get rich. You'll never get rich. Um, and uh, rich by digging a ditch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I so think it, I think it was supposed to be contemporary. 
uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, 1950s. Mm-hmm. Although that, that was right right after Korea, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it 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 was pretty clear that it was not wartime. It was it was very much a peacetime. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, Bilko, uh, like the name suggests, to bilk someone, he was always after some sort of angle. Somehow, somehow the guys would get something that they really weren't supposed to get. He had some sort of deal going where somehow the money would come in. There was some sort of uh, way that, uh, you know, he would somehow uh, be able to uh, work the system his way in order to uh, uh, to come out on top uh, financially, right? Wasn't that generally what every show was about? Pretty much, although this episode, I think, kind of breaks that stereotype because he, you know, a lot of people have uh, have questioned whether or not, and you know, particularly that Phil Silvers was Jewish and was kind of pretty obviously Jewish, even though he didn't really play a Jewish character per se. Uh, it was you know he 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 was a jewish person and he was and i don't think he, he could hide it you know that that he was jewish my you know one of my balabatim in the shul who was nifter a few years ago said he he dated the phil silver's niece actually uh uh-huh. he was, he was jewish uh but anyway uh he uh, you know th- this whole thing that he's trying to to get ahead, it, it almost would seem to most people to be like this is a hundred percent. It's like I would say, or uh, or, I, or uh, the Dickens, what was the Dickens character? Fagin, uh, Fagin, Fagin. But, okay, Fagin. A, a, a more humorous than Fagin, but I would assume the average 1950s uh, non Jewish uh, television viewer saw this guy as a typical Jew. They all knew he was Jewish. And this is sort of like the Jewish mentality to, you know, like, you know, to almost, you know, like, like love and Arami, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is what it says. See the paper you see, I didn't cheat you. Yeah, you see, I, you know, and, and you'd find yourself, you know, shaking your head at uh, Bilko's inventiveness and how he was able to, uh, uh, how he was able to rip you off. And, in fact, you know, I would say, you know, Silver's, you know, after you know the 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 Bilko show, which was extremely popular, I think it was, I don't, again I don't know if Nielsen ratings were uh, indicates this or not, but I know it was a very popular program. And if you think about you know the beginning of the the end of the forties, beginning of the fifties, you have Milton Berle, you know, uh, very much an obvious a Jewish comedian who who you know worked in the Borscht Belt before he uh, got into radio and and TV. And then you have at the end of the fifties, you have Phil Silvers uh, with Sid Caesar in the middle. I mean, the Jews were basically the main comics in many ways. I mean, you had Gleason, of course, for that incredible season uh, of the Honeymooners. But, uh, you know, the, the Jews were, uh, in terms of the variety shows, even in the Colgate Comedy Hour in the beginning of the 1950s, uh, it wouldn't have been anything without Jerry Lewis. Uh, Jerry Lewis, of course, you know, every month or so, uh, Jerry Lewis and, and uh, Dean Martin hosted the show. And those those episodes are also classic. I guess I'm trying to point out is the Jews were everywhere. And I think that um, Silvers, unlike Jerry Lewis or uh, although Jerry Lewis played a certain type almost consistently, uh, unlike Sid Caesar or or Burl, he pretty much played the same character. Right. I mean, that was that character, the guy who would um, win your confidence. Seemingly, he's your best friend puts his arms around you, but you know, he's got some angle. There's something about those glasses, those arched eyebrows. There's something about him that, you know, that uh, he's got something coming in. Uh, lovable, but definitely underhanded. Now you're saying this episode, the one you're recommending to watch, 
reveals a little bit of a different side of uh, Phil as as Vilko? Yeah, I mean, he's still using the same mannerisms to accomplish this, but uh, so Joey Ross, uh, you know, he decides he's quitting the army. He's going to go open a restaurant and he's going to, he has uh, some, you know, him and his wife, they're going to move into another town and he's, he's, <coughs> excuse me, he's going to leave, uh, he's going to leave it all and all he has saved up is $400. But he had, uh, you know, this big guilt on his shoulders that here he, he uh, lost another four hundred dollars, you know, with all the gambling and and shtick that Bilko did, and uh, Bilko realizes, you know what? Now that he's leaving the army, you know, this was all fun and games while we're here, but I really want to give it back to him, but also give it back to him that he should. It shouldn't be Nahamad Aksufa. He shouldn't feel embarrassed. He shouldn't feel. He should feel uh, that he actually won. So he kind of was giving. I, I guess along the lines, uh, uh, later in Seinfeld, there was an episode where there was a, a guy he wanted to date uh, Elaine, but he was too embarrassed to ask her out. So he he would make these silly bets that were very, you know, he said something like Dustin Hoffman was in Star Wars or something. I bet you, I bet you a dinner. And but here, so he made several very funny bets, you know, like, oh, I bet you you were born in Singapore or something like that. And uh, to try to get it down to double or nothing, so he could give back this eight hundred dollars, something like this. I think first he lost. He first he 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 won from him the four hundred dollars that he had saved up. So now he had no savings left. So he wanted to give back this eight hundred dollars, uh, and he would make these bets. And then <coughs> and and the thing was was that they didn't trust him so much because of his history. They said, "Oh, if he's betting like this, it can't be." Like, you know, they just, they couldn't trust him, but he really wanted to give back. He really realized, you know, again, I think the same thing, the people there in prison, they want to pass the time. He's in, he's in the army. He's stuck there. He doesn't have much of a choice. He wants to pass the time making. I see. Look, you know, he's really uh, not trying to get rich out of it. He's just trying to. And when, when, when push comes to shove, he wants to give back. And I think that's, the, the positive thing that comes out of this and how he tries to do it while maintaining uh, Ross's dignity there. It's, uh, Without it's him realizing that he's giving him a handout. Look, you know, I, I think many of these programs that had these rascals um, as their star needed, of course, to temper uh, their the negativity, especially on special episodes. So, you know, I'm not surprised that they didn't want Silvers just to be, you know, a complete uh, scoundrel. But um, yeah, it, 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 it would be wrong to say he was a one-note player. He clearly, you know, was a bit player in Hollywood, and they tried to, you know, to build him up somewhat in the '40s and '50s. You know, as a, um, uh, a a film I always liked that he was in, which is very funny, uh, is A Thousand and One Nights, where he plays uh, Abdullah. You know this Jewish guy from Brooklyn, and uh, it's it's it, 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 and very much it's sort of like the uh, template for um, Disney's Aladdin. You know, just like Robin Williams keeps on in, in the cartoon version of Aladdin, uh, keeps on uh, talking about all these anachronistic things that couldn't have been possible in Arabia, like the the types of statements he was saying and the type of beings he was turning into. Um, Silver's in this A Thousand and One Nights constantly breaks the fourth wall uh, by referring to things uh, that are all 20th century. And I think, um, you know, in a smart aleck 
sort of way. Um, not as uh, not with the same sort of chain as Bugs Bunny, but sort of a similar type of smart aleck uh, type of character that I think he was always playing. I mean, I knew Silver's, you know, Yitzhak, not from the Bilko show. I knew him from all the television shows I watched live in the 1960s. Like all the shows that my parents, you know, when they parked me in front of the television, he showed up everywhere. I don't think if you if you go through his IMDb page, I think you'll see he probably was a guest star on almost every single sitcom and variety show, even after he lost his own program um, and um, yeah, consistently playing pretty much, you know, that guy uh, that you expected um, and uh, always with an angle. I, I think the episode where I first sort of like recognized who he was, was a show that was a favorite of mine. I, I think you yourself said you, uh, you, you tasted from the coconut itself, the uh, um, Gilgan's Island. I think it's in the third season in the episode called The Producer. Um, again, it, it's amazing how many people find this uncharted island. You know? How many people found it and, and, they, and they can never get off despite all their uh, inventiveness. Uh, but uh, Silver's plays Harold Hecuba, the producer of, uh, of Hollywood uh, extravaganzas and musicals. And of course, you know, uh, the movie star is on the island, Ginger. Uh, Grant is on the island, and um, you know, they're trying to push. Um, they're trying to push uh, uh, Hecuba to to give Ginger a role and to bring her back to Hollywood, and they're they're all going to go back with her. And somehow, the idea, uh, in order to convince him, they come up with this idea to have a musical version of Hamlet. And uh, I remember the songs as if it was yesterday when, when I saw them. And um, it, it, they, inspired by Hecuba, uh, put on a musical version with, with everybody in the, in, in the cast uh, playing this wonderful role. And of course, what Silvers ends up doing, uh, Hecuba ends up doing is, it was such a great idea. He's worried that they're going to steal it. If they if they get off the island with him, he wants he wants all the credit. So he ends up taking whatever it was, the plane that picks him up or the boat that picks him up, takes him away and he leaves them all stranded again. Um, that's where I remember from. It's just a, it's just a great episode in terms of uh, it was written. It was actually directed by Ida Lupino, that episode. And she, of course, was one of Hollywood's first female uh, directors. Not, not only did she play uh, in many uh, important films herself as a film star, um, she directed and she had a very important approach in, in film noir and other films. And she directed this episode uh, of, of Gilligan's Island with Phil Silvers in it. Um, you know, I, I think in another way, Yitzchuk, I guess Silvers touches a chord for both of us. One of our favorite uh, car Hanna-Barbera cartoons uh, that, of course, uh, features a character that was you know, pretty much Phil Silvers, which was uh, Top Cat. And uh, it only lasted a season, but it was it, it has an it had an incredible afterlife. You know, the, the Flintstones lasted five seasons and, of course, was constantly rerun. Uh, this was a show that was also run in primetime, uh, Top Cat. And uh, it was very, very popular when I started looking this thing up. I saw that, you know, in, in, in the South American countries, they love Top Cat. I mean, they, you know, he's, he, he's great. And of course, the character that was voiced by Arnold Strang, uh, Top Cat himself, TC, um, the, the fellow did basically a Phil Silver's imitation for him. And it was sort of the same idea 
of you know the, this group of in fact one of the actors Benny the Ball one of the cats I think was voiced by the same actor who played a similar character in the original in, in Bilko so um you know, I know Top Cat means a lot to you. You want to talk a little bit about Silver's, the Silver's inspired a character of, of Top Cat? Uh, it, you know, I, I, once on The Simpsons, there was an episode where they uh, discovered that the whole Itchy and Scratchy cartoon was stolen. And in the defense, they said, well, you know, if you take away our right to plagiarize, you know, what are we going to get? You know, the Flintstones was the Honeymooners and Top Cat was Sergeant Bilko and and uh, and Chief Wiggum is, is Edward G. Robinson. So everything is everything is stolen from something else. And uh, but the uh, Top Cat, it's it's a, a fun show. Again, one that I again, I was it was after my time, like all these shows, I mean, before my time. But I saw them in reruns on the Cartoon Network and now they're streaming on a channel boomerang which is uh, not that expensive for the year to to uh stream a lot of the Hanna Barbera cartoons and well, I mean all of these are great the uh, you know jo- 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 I should tell you Joseph Hanna thought that it was a superior program to the Flintstones he thought it was in fact he felt that there was an idea behind it other than in other words the Flintstones not just ripping off the honeymooners the Flintstones was, what can we do to sort of like, uh, in a way, satirize things that are going on in, in, in present day America and give them a caveman name, like a Stony Curtis or something like that. Um, it, it wasn't, it didn't get much more inventive than that. Whereas Barbera thought that at least in Top Cat, there was an idea of sort of like the under, uh, the underserviced community, you know, was struggling to get get by. You know, the 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 cop was always trying to to limit them, and all they wanted was, I get to get the fish or the milk or whatever it was they were trying to get these cats. And, and, and there was something about you know trying to achieve something, if, if not necessarily beyond the law, but when you know that you have stuff stacked against you, you know, as opposed to. You know, uh, Barney and Fred, you know, trying to get rich or, or or becoming famous on some program and really didn't have much to say, you know, other than, oh, you know, look, <laughs> you know, we're going to have a society that uh, basically is is basically a 1960 United States. But instead, we're just going to sort of like uh, put it back into the Stone Age. Um, not I, much. I agree with that. It's really it, it really is a. It, it is a, a better made show. There's much more depth to it, I think, than you know, and, and, not, and, not to put down the Flintstones. The Flintstones are fun, but this is, I think, a little bit more on. on and, and, and I think it banks, you know, a lot on you know Top Cat himself, who of course is really that that Phil Silver's character, you know, really created, you know, you know, a, as a caricature, as that as that, even to the point of the glasses and some of the other nattiness of uh, of the way Silver's acted. Okay. Yeah, which, 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 like I said, Steve Martin, he didn't, he did not do, he couldn't accomplish. Uh, yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I think it was sort of. I think there might be a little bit of, of discomfort, I guess, with the, um, you know, with that type of character. I think as the as the '70s and '80s and '90s, I think there was a little bit of a, a discomfort of. You know the the con man, the the you know the sweaty go getter. 
there was almost a, a sense that you know maybe again you could just say if silvers broke the mold um uh, I'll, I'll i'll stick i'll keep with tv uh in, in for a minute here uh since we're talking tv now um and i'll i'm going to mention something that uh, you know i mentioned the mary tyler moore show often on our other uh, podcast and i uh, but here I'm, i want to talk about the sort of like the the what what spawned uh, the idea of more realistic uh sitcoms and that of course was the dick van dyke show which um I think ran from 1961 to 1967, I think, or 66 or 67. Um, and um, was in many ways um, uh, a, a, a breakthrough program. Um, it was a program that in a way was a commentary on television because of course uh, the, the main character wrote for a, a, a variety show that was based on uh, uh, Sid Caesar. Of course, uh, Alan Brady is of course a, a type of Sid Caesar type of person. Um, uh, Carl Reiner, of course, was a writer and an actor in the Sid Caesar show, uh, in the Orso show. So uh, his idea was to sort of reconstruct what the writer's room was like, which, of course, had Mel Brooks and uh, Woody Allen and many other brilliant uh, writers. And instead, he took sort of a... Um, a uh, a, a, a nobody, right? A person that was very, very, not exactly a well-known name, Dick Van Dyke, who had done a couple of small things on radio and maybe a couple of television things. And you know, he, he made him a star uh, in a program that uh, really, in a way, was forward-looking. It was somehow, you know, Dick Van Dyke and his wife, uh, the very beautiful Mary Tyler Moore, many people saw them as sort of Kenneth, Jackie Kennedy and, and John Kennedy. Um, there was a, definitely a physical similarity between uh, Jackie's hairstyle and Mary Tyler Moore. Um, the the program uh, that I'm referring to is uh, from the third season. I think it's the fifth episode. Uh, it's called All About Eavesdropping. And in this episode, uh, the Petries, who are Rob and Laura, who are uh, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, who live in New Rochelle, and, you know, a small, but uh, I guess uh, a typical suburban home uh, have their, their neighbors who they can call across because there isn't a large expanse. And the neighbors are Jerry and Millie Helper, played by Jerry Paris and Anne Guilford. Um, and they are, of course, although they're not, uh, I don't think in any program they were ever referred to as being Jewish, but it's obvious. Both of the actors are Jewish. And even the name Helper uh, has a very Jewish sounding aspect to it. So these are their best friends. Uh, it turns out that Millie, of course, has somehow been part of their life for years. And now Jerry and Rob are neighbors and have become ostensibly best friends. In this program, uh, the boys, the, the young boys, Freddie and Richie, who are good friends, have a walkie talkie and the walkie talkie is left on. And therefore, they, um, uh, Rob is able to hear through the walkie-talkie that's left on what is going on next door in the helper's house. And he's able to hear um, a conversation that uh, Jerry, the dentist next door, is having with Millie as they're planning a dinner party that the Petries are invited to. Incredibly, for some reason, they also invite Rob's co-workers, which, again, this was, a, in a way, a, a lot of things that didn't make sense that 
if you ever watch the program, you know, why Rob's coworkers would be at his house consistently. I mean, this is really talk about there were definitely no boundaries, although most of the uh, most of the uh, program was only shot on two sets, which was the Petri home and the uh, office. Uh, they did very little. There was you never even saw a scene outside. Uh, this was something uh, Yitzchak that uh, sitcoms only developed like somehow by 1970 or so. The idea that in between shots we can show you an exterior scene and somehow insert it as if to give you a sense that this is happening in some other building or some other place. For some reason, uh, you know, you know the the geniuses who and I say geniuses who created the of uh, I Love Lucy. And including all these uh, sitcoms in the 60s, they weren't ever able to think about splicing, you know, with the uh, studio audience that they had there. They never realized that when they could splice the film, they can somehow give it some verite by at least giving you some sort of image of, of, of the outside world. That was something that I think it might be. I, I think it might have been uh, uh, the Morrow Thomas vehicle, That Girl with Ted Bissell was the first uh, sitcom that really gave you some outdoor scenes of New York and other things like that. But anyway, the point is, is that somehow, uh, somehow uh, the uh, Rosemary and Maury Amsterdam playing Buddy Sorrell and Sally Rogers are somehow also invited to this dinner party. And when they um, uh, eavesdrop through the um, uh, walkie-talkie, they hear some negative comments about them. They hear some uh, a um, an inference that perhaps Laura, uh, Mary Tyler Moore's character, had somehow um, uh, not given the proper recipe for the avocado dip, and that she can't believe that she would be so petty, um, and that Rob. Uh, is also a person who always tries to be the best. And Rob is someone who always wants to be the smartest in the room and always wants to push how of a kind person he is. That Rob is somewhat a presumptuousness. Now, when you hear what your best friends might be saying about you behind closed doors, although it's only a snippet of a conversation, this enrages them. And although they feel guilty originally by listening, once they hear it, it becomes something that they can't help listening to. And when they turn it off, eventually, they are no longer best friends. But this poison has entered into their, uh, into their consciousness. And they see the helpers now as duplicitous. They see them as phonies. They see them as, as people who really despise them and hate them. And although they're invited to this supper party they don't know if they can make an excuse not to come because the whole party only has six people so they're they represent 33 percent of the party they have to show up but when they show up they show up angry they show up with this uh knowledge of uh, in, in the sense that the uh that the that the uh helpers are really duplicitous phonies and they become angry and and uh, uh insulting and in and, and, and ways that are perplexing to everybody that is there. So I that episode to me, Yitzchak, is, although it's technically about what's wrong about eavesdropping, I don't think I've ever seen a better presentation about the danger of Rachilus, the danger of hearing what somebody might have said about you out of context. We know what Rachilus is, of course. You know, what... Um, 
did you hear what this person has said about you? You think this person is your friend? The Rochel tells you, I heard him say this. And the person hearing it, because he's hearing it and he's sort of surprised, assumes that that piece of information represents everything. And somehow that piece of information that he heard from this Rochel now can turn the table and can actually change totally and completely. And we know that it does. Because, of course, the Gemara uses, as you know, Yitzchak, uh, the, uh, advan- the example of Rechilus to Doeg, right? Doeg, of course, uh, tells Shol HaMelech about, um, you know, his Rochel on what um, uh, the uh, uh, what, what David HaMelech has done and what the Kohen uh, Godel has done. And that, of course, you know, in Shol's state, makes him believe that 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 this this person is his enemy, this person hates him, this person is in league with David. And that of course is really what what this program, uh the uh the Mary Tower Mor- this the the Dick Van Dyke program does as well. Um they they, they yeah uh of course the program goes through a, a series where they actually listen on they they eavesdrop a little bit more and they hear how hurt the helpers are they they realize that after they've come to the to the the dinner party and acted angry and brazen and went home in a huff the helpers are crying and and they can't figure out what it is and they remember the helpers talk about all the the good things they've done and maybe there was 20 cents that they might owe or maybe there was an idea of a bill that 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 Jerry thinks that he sent to Rob and that he didn't explain to him why he was charging more for the dentistry that he was doing for him. And maybe that's the reason why Rob is angry. And that reminds them of the big picture. It reminds them that when we hear one thing out of context, despite the fact that it might have been not have been the nicest thing to say, we realize what 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 Chaim what that does for us and how that plays in our mind. Um uh, again, what I would say just as a rabbi uh, who was watching the show, that it's a great Musar for Lashon Hara. There is some talk at the end how, of course, um, to your wife, you say negative things to, you know, among yourselves, you do express these negative opinions. You just don't want anyone else to hear them. That, of course, is anti. And I don't think that uh, I don't ascribe, I don't give any haskam on that. But if if ever anybody wanted to know what the difficult, what, how terrible it was, um, and 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 to to be Rochel, this program would be really the the place to go, and it's really done with such uh, panache. It was uh, directed and, and written by a number of Jewish people as well, but it really is a uh, a gem, and it might be, in my mind, it, it might be one of the best of a of a of a of a of a, uh, a series that had winners consistently. It might be, you know, to me, it's probably one of the top, if not the top program in the whole Mary uh, Tyler Moore, in the whole uh, Dick Van, I keep on saying that, the whole Dick Van Dyke uh, series. Yitzchak, what else do you have for us? Let's talk about a Thanksgiving program, perhaps. Well, I, 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 I've seen that episode and I concur with everything you say. Well, uh, you know, there's so many good movies for Thanksgiving, but I know... Uh, 
the Mystery Science Theater 3000, they always have Turkey Day on Thanksgiving and they're doing it again on YouTube. One movie that never made it to uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, maybe in the new, they're making another season now. Uh, they did two seasons on Netflix, new seasons, and they're making another one now. Uh, but and they're going to announce what the movies are, and I'm I'm kind of hoping maybe it's a movie that the movie itself really isn't that bad. It's not a brilliant film, but it's a pretty fair, decent uh, 1950s monster movie. Except that the monster really looks so r ridiculously funny that uh, it, that makes it uh, you know get a lot of attention. And it's from 1957, Columbia Pictures. Uh, the giant claw, and which I get, there's a which is about a giant bird from outer space, uh, kind of looks like a turkey, I guess. And uh, I know they always call the bad movies turkeys. There was the Golden Turkey Awards that uh, two nice Jewish boys, the Medved brothers, uh, put together, which are you know they claim to be the worst movies ever made, which I would not really agree with because there are a lot worse movies that are a lot. <laughs> you know, one, uh, one thing I noticed is that. The bad movies from the 50s usually are pretty fun, but the bad movies from the 70s are kind of painful. Um, this movie, the, the acting, Jeff Morrow and Mara Corday are the leads, and they, they put their all into it. But my understanding was they originally wanted uh, Ray Harryhausen to do the special effects, which he had done masterfully for Columbia Pictures. Uh, they, they did It came from beneath the sea and 20 million miles to earth. Uh, which I, 20 million miles earth is probably my favorite from uh, Harryhausen films. Uh, and I think at the time he was busy with probably one, although his favorite was Jason the Argonauts. A few years later, um, the seventh voyage of Sinbad is probably one of his greatest. Uh, is it, you talk, is it, is, is it possible, you know, I'm looking at the, um, the uh you know the app here about the giant claw uh i think the third build uh actor is uh, morris ankrum any right. uh any when i see morris i somehow <laughs> i somehow wonder if he's one of us um uh, he, he's the one who plays the 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 army uh general i think in a lot yes. of yes i'm not I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, my 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 Zeta. He had two neighbors named Morris, and then I, I have a friend of mine who lives in, who lives in uh, in Woodridge, where there's Camp Morris, and then uh, I I didn't know. You know, they had an English under, and it's Camp Morris. Underneath it said Machna Moshe, and I think he had kind of a Lenny Bruce moment where he said. You know, Camp Morris sounds Jewish, but 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 Machne Moshe sounds Goyish. You know, like it's a, I see. <laughs> I don't well, I don't know if Morris Ankrum is, was was Jewish or not, but the uh, the monster looks very silly. It's it was actually designed by a Mexican uh, special effects maker, which a lot of the Mexican movies had these very outlandish monsters that were quite, very interesting to look at. This so. This one would right. kind of well, definitely. We know we know it was produced by Sam Katzman, who we know was yeah, a uh... was, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think he made a lot of these movies over the already starting, I think, in the 40s, maybe even the late 30s, and going into the 50s. And he was so he made so... Columbia quite a few that were 
really, you know, the movies themselves were not bad. It's just that, you know, they were dealing with the budgets that they had and so forth. And this one, just they were saddled with this this funny monster. It was, it was funny. One of the lines that Jeff Morrow says is, I don't care if this monster comes from outer space or Upper Saddle River, New Jersey. So, then it's like, <laughs> so whenever I pass through there, you know. You think about it. Yeah, from, from Muncie, I was like, maybe the giant claw was from here, not from... <laughs> Well, you know, I think you have a, um, uh, you know, it definitely has a Jewish provenance to it. Uh, it was the screenwriter was Samuel Newman, right? And uh, you know, as we said, the producer. Uh, it was actually it was released as a double bill. I would have loved to see that double bill. Uh, I think when it came out, right? What was the other movie on it? Um, it was it was it was the double bill was the night the world exploded. I don't think I've ever seen that one. <laughs> well, definitely, it would be an interesting uh, a couple of hours, uh, I guess, and in on on uh, in the theater for uh, the giant claw. Yeah, and uh, they kept not... saying it's as big as a battleship, which is, you know, this is a giant battleship. And... Mm. Well, uh, worthwhile, perhaps to to have a, a little. Um, a program that you might enjoy on a Thanksgiving afternoon. Um, I'm going to uh, take something from about that time. Was that that was 1957? I'm going to go from the same year. I think um, uh, a film that um, I think is pretty pretty much the spirit of Thanksgiving in in many ways. Although it doesn't take us back to uh, the Pilgrims, uh, it does take us back to a Sylvan um, uh, period. Uh, a period really that that uh, in the heart of the United States history in the right before in, in the beginning of the Civil War. And that is uh, William Wyler's a Jewish director, of course, uh, Friendly Persuasion. Um, this was a film that um, was it's been forgotten, I think it was a film that in its time was actually applauded by so many um, religious um uh, organizations. They really saw this as, uh, uh, you know, a big color production that uh, had great American themes. Uh, the theme of a um, of a Quaker family that was living in Indiana uh, and that was dealing, you know, with the Civil War and, of course, the the Quakers' pacifism. But the film is really not so much about, you know, the the Although there is a situation, of course, where the war does enter into that area in Indiana, where um, uh, where this Quaker uh, family and their community lives, the film is really about uh, how a religious community is able to deal with modernism. It's how a religious community can keep its identity and yet adopt some of the positive elements of the United States and the community around it. Um, the the film consistently contrasts uh, the Quaker lifestyle to the lifestyle of the more open Christians around them, the ones who sing and have an uh, who have an organ in their uh, in their church, the ones who um, have a different type of service. The Quakers, of course, are more austere. Uh, the Quakers um, uh, uh, and, and and they keep their their way of dress, they keep their um, what we call perhaps their archaic way of speech, 
Um, I don't know if the actors who played the Quaker characters uh, did a, a great job. I know it was based on a series of, of, of stories about this uh, Quaker family. But to me, when I want to teach to my students, especially Hasidic students who are now just discovering film, and they themselves are somehow fascinated by this world out there, I show them this film. And they see so many parallels, which are, which are obvious. There's a great scene where, um, you know, the, 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 the husband and wife played by Dorothy McGuire and Gary Cooper um, take the family to a carnival. And this reminded me so much of my own youth when I was like a, an Orthodox child being taken to a state fair. But especially what I see now where, you know, during Halamoyed, where Hasidic families and other families are going uh, to something which is basically a Hershey Park or Bronx Zoo. And there's so many other uh, enticements. And the family is trying to, uh, to keep their children sheltered. And the film does a great job of indicating that although the children are not necessarily uh, going to assimilate, they are going to be affected by what they see. And in some ways, um, the the Quaker culture has something uh, that can actually teach and edify uh, the greater culture. Um, there is that. If, well, I want to talk a little bit about the leads. Uh, Dorothy McGuire was sort of an ingenue when she first came into Hollywood. Um, I believe uh, uh, she won the Academy Award uh, in Gentleman's Agreement. Uh, we talked about Elliot Kazan uh, the other week, if you remember. And she plays the supposedly liberal-minded a white American who really sees that she's really steeped in prejudice. And that's why her character was so crucial, you know, even more than the Gregory Peck character in, in, in Gentleman's Agreement, because she's someone who supposedly is not anti-Semitic, and yet she finds that she harbors a lot of negative feelings towards Jews and, and, and how horrible it would be for her if, if her boyfriend that she's going to marry is a Jew, although, of course, he's not. So Dorothy McGuire really was a, a great stand-in for uh, the audience in Gentleman's Agreement, and I think uh, she deserved the accolades there. But this film, which is about almost 10 years later, uh, she's playing the mother, uh, obviously a very striking woman, uh, the age gap between her and Gary Cooper is immense. But in this film, she isn't just, you know, a mom who takes care of things. She's actually the 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 main minister, I guess, is the uh, at the meeting house. Uh, part of what is emphasized that in, in the Quaker church, which is not called the church at all, um, the they aren't reading from scripture or singing the Psalms, but they are inspired uh, by the verses in the Bible to actually sort of have Ruach HaKodesh on their own. And uh, she is the, the the mistress of the meeting house. She's like one of the main preachers and um, she actually voices the idea of pacifism, even if the cause of slavery, uh, the cause of trying to defeat uh, people who believe in slavery and, and other things was important. Still, the idea of taking another person's life can't be sanctioned no matter what. And she, of course, is the one who voices that. Um, so Dorothy McGuire really you know, plays a, a very strong but compassionate person in terms of, of, of a, a religious figure who's trying to keep the Isodos of the past strong, but recognizing that her children 
and society itself is changing in front of her. The dynamic between her and Gary Cooper, I think, is 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 quite interesting. You know, Coop uh, to me uh, was you know one of the great American movie stars. I think you know Yitzhak. I know you know we we you know our involvement in films is different, um, but you know I you know I'm very much into the you know the classics. And when I think about you know the classic actors of the 30s and 40s. You know, if we talk about Bogart, Robinson, you mentioned him earlier in a way, um, Cagney. But really, you know, the, the, the ones who played, you know, the leading men who sort of were meant uh, for people to, uh, to connect to in, in, in such a, uh, uh, in a great way. Not just the, the, the ones like, you know, Cornel Wilde or, um, uh, or um, Errol Flynn or, you know, you know, Victor Mature, Handsome Hunks. People who really, you know, like you, know, you, you would probably say you have Jimmy Stewart, um, Spencer Tracy, uh, Clark Gable, and Gary Cooper. Uh, those probably, again, represent uh, the four stars who could sort of be every man and represent them. Um, I put in John Wayne there, of course, as well, but he was more of, uh, of a hero uh, type. Uh, these other four really, and again, you know, Coop was uh, in many ways... Um, you know, whether it was playing in the Pride of the Yankees or Sergeant York, which is a film I think we've discussed before on our other program. Um, you know, he was someone that all of America really uh, related to. And what, what I'm trying to say, I think, is that, you know, Cooper uh, in this role, he isn't as gung-ho as his wife. But yet he represents a solid representation of what the Quaker religion is about in a way that's less strident than Dorothy McGuire but is more um, compassionate in some ways, more understanding. He's more tempted. Unlike his wife, he actually wants to bring in the version of a VCR a television into the house. You know, he actually buys a, um, an organ, uh, which, 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 which is a thing to play music on. And, and he orders it uh, from someone who I think is probably a Jewish salesman. And um, the, uh, he loves it. And even though, of course, the, the Quaker, uh, according to you know this film, the Quakers felt that music is the devil's uh, plaything, and that the, the, the one shouldn't hear music in such a way, uh, you know, it's something that he has a tremendous hate of horror for, and he goes and buys it anyway. And of course, now it's a big scandal that the that the organ has uh, has come uh, to the home, and uh, you know the elders. Uh, of, of, of the Quakers are coming to the house and this, this becomes something where, you know, she becomes very embarrassed about it and it leads to a little bit of a, of a marital schism between them. And yet, you know, Cooper, you know, insists on having it and he sort of stands up to her uh, about it, although they come to some sort of compromise. So he, to me, he sort of represents the greatness of all Americans and that sometimes part of the great American experiment is to be, um, uh, to compromise, to to assimilate somewhat uh, without losing uh, the greatness of the culture you come from. And, you know, Cooper, in many ways, uh, especially as the film develops, uh, shows that quiet strength uh, that is in line incredibly with, you know, what the Quaker uh, sensibilities are, 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 are about. And, you know, of course, I think he was probably around 40 years older than Dorothy McGuire and still, you know, playing uh, her husband. Anthony Perkins, 
I think earned a, a Oscar nomination. Of course, Anthony Perkins, of course, um, you could already see the beginning of uh, Norman Bates <laughs> in this characterization, uh, the twitchy, he's sort of like the teenage son who's sort of struggling with should I become an American? Should I go to like a, a yeshiva guy? Should I go to college? Should I cut my payas off? Maybe I want to become part of that. Maybe I want to join that. And he does a, a great job there. Um, the other part of the family uh, is played by, you know, very unknown actors. And, and the director, William Wyler, I think they chose people, un, unlike Dorothy McGuire and Gary Cooper, who were very iconic. The other parts of the family, the the love interest, the 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 girl who is, you know, she wants to be from, she wants to be part of the Quaker world, but she finds herself attracted to the neighbor's boy who is a soldier in the Union Army. She's a very um, not typical, uh, she's not June Allison, she's not Debbie Reynolds. She's a, a type of girl that you would pass in the street and not give her a second look. And I thought that was very um, uh, Weiler's choice was very interesting because he he took someone who looked like like anyone. Uh, he didn't take necessarily uh, a, a a girl that uh, had a uh, you know the type of look that would or, or, or like Natalie Wood in in the Searchers took a a very plain average girl and wanted to show you how that these other religions that that are among us. Are regular people just like us. The last thing I want to say is that the film, um, it doesn't have an arc of great drama. It's episodic, and it's 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 like vignettes, and really it sort of ends at the same place that it started. It's got Marjorie Maine, who of course you know uh, for some comic relief. It also has a couple of subtle points about. Um, about African-American relations. Uh, the Quakers are shown to be extremely kind uh, to the hired servant who, um, who lives uh, close by with them. But I think in many ways, the program was sort of like watching a series, like watching about 10 episodes of a television program. Uh, it, it's episodic, as I said. It doesn't necessarily need to build to some big, you know, great dramatic finish it's true it does have uh, sort of a war scene where you know they come into contact with uh, with having to go into battle but in general the 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 film is really uh more about a slice of american life and how this american experiment which was built from religious people again we could quibble and argue about the prejudices of the pilgrims and many of the other uh, uh, people who came here to be able to uh, practice their religion. But I think what this film does is indicate that America, despite all its faults, is a place where religious communities are able to thrive. They are able to interact with each other they're able to learn from each other, and they're able to, to gain the respect of the other. And that way, I would say that Friendly Persuasion, again, the Pat Boone theme song, I know it was a big hit in the 1956 or 57 when the film came out. Uh, you know, you can shut your ears for that because it's quite uh, <laughs> sophomoric, I would say, to listen to. But I would say uh, Friendly Persuasion to me um, is definitely a type of film, I think, you could sit around, everyone in the family could watch. And I think especially a Jewish family, I think would uh, 
would, would, would nod in recognition to everything that they would see there on the screen. I, I, I think it's very appropriate that you mention it for Thanksgiving because as much as we link back Thanksgiving to the mythology of the pilgrims and the Indians, uh, the idea of an annual Thanksgiving really came out of the Civil War, came out of, and when you read Lincoln's Thanksgiving uh, address from 1863, which I think we discussed last year, uh, you really bring out these themes of how one of the things he said is that, you know, really, by by and large, the average person was not as affected by the war as you would imagine would be in a civil war. And it, and the bounties and the how life really somehow more or less was was not that unusual during this time. And Lincoln looked at, you know, all the blessings that God bestowed upon us. And I think that that goes along with a lot of the things that you're you're describing. I've never seen this movie, but it's a, uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting how you know the Quaker religion is one that balances between tradition and liberalism, not necessarily modernity, but their ideology. You know, like what you you mentioned that uh, you know the mother is is preaching there because they don't have clergy; they're a society of friends, so therefore everybody is really equal anybody could just get up and and talk or or do whatever you want you know it's really uh and, and it's not what you want it's you know their belief is that the the holy spirit is working through them and guiding them and it, it's you know somewhat a precursor to to later pentecostal movements that had a similar type of approach you know in a different way it took it in a different way but that same that same theology kind of and the title, I think, is uh, Yitzchak is also, you know, uh, if you think about it, friendly persuasion. Um, yeah. The 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 lifestyle that the friends that the Quakers showed, the Haredim, so to speak, the Quakers or the Shakers, the the, the people that were quaking and in, in in their fear of God, but they could be persuasive. They could be persuasive by the model of life and the good deeds that they showed. And I think in, in, in that way, you know, although, you know, the world that was depicted in this film was was no longer there. It was obviously a Hollywood version of 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 what life might have been in you know, Indiana in, in the 1860s. But I think the the religious ideals, the way they were exhibited by the Quakers, uh, still continued to persuade and continue to 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 move us along. It's 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 wonderful, I believe, that. You know, a film that came out of a, you know, it was such a, you know, the 50s was such a incredible era, you know, coming off of World War II uh, in terms of what Hollywood was able to do uh, in terms of the type of what they were able to, you know, how they could expand the use of the cameras and other things, what they were able to do, the speed with which they were able to produce films. Um, the innovations that they had in terms of cinemascope and and, and, and the use of color. Um, uh, integrating uh, scores. I mean, in many ways, the '50s was a, you know, very much a uh, an inventive, incredible era. But when I think about the '50s biblical epics, I'm sort of turned off. I mean, um, I, I think that the this film is a religious film, but unlike Ben Hur or even you know uh, the film that came out, I guess uh, within a year of Friendly Persuasion, the um, Ten Commandments. You know, this is a film that. I think one can 
absorb without saying, oh, they got that wrong. Oh, look at those guys in the loincloths. Um, you know, <laughs> um, you know, here's a film about the Christ, you know, Ben-Hur, you know. This is a film where, you know, they don't have to invoke Jesus um, to be able to extol religion and not necessarily in just a sort of like secular humanist way. Um, and, and that's a trick to be able to pull off, uh, to be able to do that. I think, I think you'll agree with me that the biblical epics, you know, are, 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 are somewhat cheesy, uh, oh, you know. And they, they're often very difficult to watch and, and for, not just because they're long, but they're just, they're, they're, they're not as good as, as, as they're made out to be. You know, the Ten Commandments, even though, you know, it, it, it became somewhat of a tradition to watch it, it's really, it's not really that good. You know, it's not. Look, uh, th- there's no question about it that, you know, this is, you know, Friend of Persuasion in many ways is sort of like um, a, a throwback film. But I think it does, um, it does, it actually pushes the envelope a little bit about, um, uh, about what America stands for in terms of its, uh, how much it's, it, it believes in the strengthening of religious life. And, and that way, I think that, you know, we, we can come to Thanksgiving, um, whether we eat turkey or not, um, and appreciate, you know, that this incredible, incredible experiment. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll, I'll try to make sure that, uh, that the, my turkey doesn't have, you know, a giant claw uh, sticking in it. And, <laughs> and remember, Yitzhak, we'll, we, we, we will try to, uh, uh, hopefully, have a, a, a maybe we get turkey pacha. If you'll get the giant claw, the pacha, the pacha, yeah, possibly, possibly. Look, um, I remember you said we, we, you know, well, we don't want to eavesdrop too much on uh, on each other's Thanksgiving, but it should hopefully, you know, we should hopefully be back here next time. So, my friends, um, watch, <laughs> watch, watch, watch your step on the way out. We'll see you. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.